And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. If you're alive in the United States right now and you are listening to my voice, you're aware of two things. Number one, the ongoing pandemic. Number two, the arrival of the murder hornet. Now, these things, you might know a little bit. You've probably read a few things. You probably know that this is an invasive species that has kind of set its sights on the bee population in the United States, that it cuts off their heads and leaves the bodies strewn about the hive like some sort of science fiction horror movie. You might also know that they're roughly the size of your forearm and that they can breathe fire and that they were sent here from outer space. I don't know where you're getting your information. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, but I want to lay all of that to rest because I went right to the source. As I mentioned, you've probably read about the murder hornet, and if you have, you've read quotes by tonight's guest, Dr. Chris Looney, who I've dubbed Mr. Murder Hornet, although as I read his quotes and as I see the ongoing frustration from him and other entomologists... I feel like the murder hornet thing has kind of run its course. I don't think that they like calling this the murder hornet, nor do I think, uh, Chris, if I may be so bold, I'm not sure that you really like being called. I would even say that you hate being called Mr. Murder Hornet. Am I right in some of that? Hate would be an overstatement. As as a professional entomologist representing other professional entomologists, (laughs) we have decided collectively that we will not go with the murder hornet name because... Um, we worry that it promotes a misunderstanding of what the animals do and and also entomophobia. People are already scared of bugs as it is. So I just want you and your listeners to know that I am doing this as Chris Looney entomologist. I am not representing the Washington State Department of Agriculture. So anything I say today may or may not reflect the views of the department. So (laughs) that frees me to enjoy this beer and talk to you more naturally. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Well, I just want to let you know Chris Looney, two things. Number one, that all of the, everything that I'm saying do reflect my personal views. Uh, <laughs> and second of all, and not to make you feel small in any way, shape, or form, because you are kind of the celebrity in, in the nation right now, if not the world, uh, but you are the third Looney that I've interviewed on the show, which is kind of crazy. I interviewed, Who are the other uh, ones? I interviewed a – well, it's kind of a cheat because I interviewed a married couple. So it's Andy and Kristen Looney who run a, a games company called Looney Labs. But you're the third loony but you guys are all like genius level iq which is crazy and then there's kevon looney for the golden state warriors i don't know like he's not a scientist but um the other the loony the both the ones are one's like a rocket scientist and one is you know a, some other kind of scientist they're genius level and it's funny with the last name of loony you wouldn't think that they would be geniuses you think they would be in an institution someplace drooling on themselves but no you guys are killing it out there now i know you don't like the term murder hornet but a we've already established that it's really cool but b I think the problem that people are having with it is they're looking at it from like a person, like a, a, a human-centered point of view, right? These things don't murder human beings. They barely, well, I mean, they, oh, do they? 
I mean, you know, people die from stings from this thing every year. It's in uh, in places where they're endemic, and they're not all people that um, that are allergic. It's not just people going into anaphylactic shock. They're a mm. big enough animal with a a potent enough venom that if you get several dozen stings, uh, a vibrant, healthy human could die. So, and it's not clear to me where this murder hornet name came from. And that was that was told to Mike Baker, the New York Times, by a, a Japanese researcher. And he said he had the nickname as the murder hornet. And it seemed like it was in the context of the human aspects, not the poor bees. Because, yeah, see, that's what, I mean, so if we look at murder, murder is like usually premeditated, right? Like these hornets don't go out and like, purposefully kill humans but they do go out and purposefully kill beehives with a fury that almost makes them more like a horror hornet or like the genocidal hornet would be like a much better name for them if you're if you're a honeybee especially an american or american honeybee sure or it's like uh it's like if you had to kill all the chickens so you could get to the eggs i mean (laughs) you know well, that that puts it in a, a much more realistic frame of uh, of reference. Um, I mean, I guess that's true. That makes a lot of sense. What I love about these things is a, they're I think they're the largest hornet in the world. They are. I mean, they're like the size of your thumb, right? The the queens are. Yeah, the workers are a little smaller, but they're big, man. And they have. Let's see if I got my my facts right. They've got a sixteen millimeter stinger. No, no, six. Six, six. I'm sorry, six. That's right. Six oh, my millimeter. gosh. A 60-millimeter stinger <laughs> on an animal that actually stings you would be I – w- I, would, I, would, I would be promoting murder hornet as a name like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We're going to get to – hopefully we're going to get to some really cool wasps later on. And I've got a little surprise. I want you to put a pin in that 16-millimeter stinger for a second. It, it's got a six-millimeter stinger, which is pretty big. And, you know – it. From what I read, I think I read this in one of the things that, that you, um, you or at least the Washington State put out, was that their venom can cause necrosis? Yeah, it has cytolytic tendencies. So basically it causes cells to dissolve right around, uh, right around when the sting happens. That's insane. That's scary. There was, so I'm from Chicago, and there's the brown recluse spider is, is there. And they, their bites, I mean, they're one of the, at least the most damaging bite. I don't know if it's the most poisonous, but I think their bite, their venom also causes necrosis. I think on a higher level, but I've seen some pictures that are like, they're terrifying. It does indeed. It's gruesome. Um, You know, but I grew up in the South where those spiders all over the place. And I, I don't know a single person that's ever been bitten by one. So, you know, there's this disconnect between what a thing could do to you and what really it's likely to do to you. Huh. I guess that that makes sense. Now, let's talk about you for a second before we really do a deep dive in here. So you're an entomologist. You're in Washington State. I just visited Washington State pre-pandemic not too long ago, just just like late last year. It is gorgeous up there. Um, You know, I I went to the Olympia National Park and Mount Shasta and Mount Rainier. And I went out to the Hanford Reach Monument. There's like a nuclear nuclear site down there that I wanted to go check out. Yeah, I did my master's there. Is that right? Uh-huh. Out of, uh, it was when it was when so during the Clinton administration, I think it started with the Reagan administration, there was this push to try and for the United States government to divest itself of all these federal properties that were no longer really needed to fight the Cold War. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Hanford site was one of them. There was a lot of people that wanted to see it be a nature preserve. There were people that wanted to see it turned over to the Yakima Nation. There were people that wanted to see it turned into like irrigated farming and stuff. And so they did this really large survey of all of the buffer areas around the nuclear zone, right? So they so they have all the, the horrible waste and, and the Manhattan Project stuff that happened right in the middle. And the rest of it is this vast protected desert. I mean, it's the most beautiful place I have been. 
And I've been to a lot of beautiful places. So, so I was part of the, the group of many, many scientists to look at the cultural and biological um, uh, treasures. What, what's the word? Like resources. There we go. Of, of that site to help decide what they would do with it. And ultimately decided they would make it into the Hanford Reach National Monument. There was something like 50 undescribed species of insect. And it was, it was yeah. Holy cow. That's amazing. Because when I was there, I was – I was pretty – the word national monument was always very confusing to me because I go around – I collect passport stamps. And so when you go to all the national places, you get this cool little stamp that has like the, the name of the place and the date you went. And so when I was in the area, I was like, oh, I got to go down there and check it out. And when you think of national monument, you think of like a statue of a president. You know, you don't normally think of like this beautiful preserve. And they mentioned all of these, you know, und, undocumented um, – insects and, and species of, of you know all kinds of stuff down there I, I thought it was gorgeous it was pretty amazing to me and that's that's incredible so you were vital in making that into a national monument or just into being a preserve um or both well both although my particular research ended up not really being that big of a deal <laughs> my my advisors did uh he was he worked with a whole bunch of different scientists um uh, who, who are all different specialties different different special entomologists specialist entomologists um and those guys are all the ones that that found all the new species i never found anything new i did some nice work documenting um, beetle populations. I'm working with a guy now on spider data. We're still processing that data from 1997, 98. <laughs> what? Uh, collected so many insects, but uh, so I was I was out there seeing the people doing the magic, but I just really got to have a nice time <laughs> being out in the desert. Now, hold on. When you say you're still processing the data, what does that mean? Like you're still like what data are you processing? Why is it taking so long? Uh, it's so taken so long, partly because I'm really slow. Um, but the other reason is so the the work the the sampling method I used was called a pitfall trap. And okay. I mean, basically, you stick a cup in the ground, poor bugs walk along, they fall into the cup, and then you've you've captured them. And so I did this for basically two years straight, bunch of different sites, and we saved everything. And just every time we get time. Uh, and an expert, we go through the next iteration of whatever animals are left to analyze. So right now we're working on the spiders <laughs> with, Rod, with Rod Crawford at the Burke Museum in, uh, in Seattle. That's a, he's an interesting noun. You should look him up. Wow, I, I will. I will. Uh, that's, that's, I, that's incredible stuff. It's just funny when you think about some of these, these research projects taking so long. Uh, I always wonder, like, how does that happen? But I guess you just have so much data. You're looking at so many different things, which is great. But you guys could have found something incredible. You could have your big thing that's in one of these cups that has yet to be analyzed. Maybe you will find an undocumented species of spider. Well, that has happened, actually, with the spider stuff. We have, I want to say, five undescribed species and then, you know, maybe a dozen new records for the state. Uh, so it's going to be a really cool paper when it comes out. We won't describe those species. They will go to a spider expert who knows what they're doing. But um, but Rod is enough of an expert to at least know that these haven't been described before. But it's not going to help for the monument because it's already been established. Right, so. right. Would you, so would you name it then or would you not get to name it? The person that describes it will be the one that names oh, it. Oh, man. So you could find it and then you got to hand it off to someone else and then they're like, sorry, yeah. guy, I know more than you. And then they name it after their kids or something. Well, I'm working on my own. Uh, I have some other species I'm working on describing right now. Uh, in fact, my my colleague, Dr. James Strange, who's a chair of entomology at the Ohio State awesome University, names. and I are describing, yeah, well, it gets a little bit better. So we're working on describing a couple of parasitoid wasps that attack cynipid gall wasps, which is another, another group of insects that I very, very slowly work on. Um, after a couple of years, I realized I had these two species undescribed in North America. 
Um, we're working on the descriptions right now. And then when we describe them, people are supposed to, the first time they mention this species name in any scientific literature they write in the future, uh, name the describers. So, so it'll say something like Glyphomeris is the genus. Um, and I think we'll name one of them Minutus or something like that. I'll have to get the Latin right. I'm not going to Latin. So it'll be like Glyphomeris, Minutus, Looney, and Strange. Oh, my God. That is amazing. You can't write know, that right? any better. And he, so he's <laughs> Dr. Strange then. That's Dr. Strange. <laughs> we, were, we were in graduate school together. He was out there at Hanford uh, hanging out with me. Uh, Oh my Good time. god, that's incredible! I love it. So you guys won't call it like the the strangeificus or the the luniferous or whatever. Like that's no, it's um, I I it might be against the zoological code to name it after yourself, but it's definitely bad form if it's not against oh, the code. Man, and, and really, it should be named something that reflects ideally something about its biology. I mean, a, a scientific name should be descriptive, informative. I guess informative. I think Stephen Colbert has a spider named after him. Yeah, uh, sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes you run out of informative adjectives to use, and so you just name them after people. You know, or it can also be a bit of a dig. There are definitely unflattering species named after political leaders that people didn't like very much. Get out. Oh, I love that. That is so nerdy. That is like – so that's like the the scientist equivalent of like a diss track from a rapper or something. (laughs) That's exactly right. That is incredible. Do you you know one off the top of your head? I've never heard of this before. I cannot say. You you don't know or you can't say. No, I can't, I can't remember. Actually. Okay, all right, all right. I thought you were exhorting like, secrecy. That's incredible. I love the parasitoid wasp because I got a whole thing on on just wasps in general that I want to get into because they're crazy. Wasps are pretty nuts, and I didn't know there was such a large segment of the wasp population, if not most, that are uh, parasites in some creepy, disgusting, horror horror movie way. Um, but let's talk about entomology for a second. How did you get into entomology? Most people, they don't like bugs. They want to stay away from them. But you, you did this uh, you know, as a career. You wanted to do this. What happened? I mean, I kind of fell into it, but... Um, like a pitfall trap. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I actually moved to Seattle from Florida right when I graduated. I had married a friend from Florida, and she still had to finish high school. So we moved to Seattle. She went to high school, and I worked construction and restaurants. And doing that for about a year, I decided I didn't really want to do that for life. I had zero interest in going to college. It was just not on my radar. Wow. Uh, I was tired of school. Um, and I planted a garden with my apartment manager, Linda Bartlett, and I realized I really liked working with living things. It was the coolest thing I did every day. I couldn't wait to get home and muck about with mints and whatever the hell else we planted. Um, and so when Kylie, my, who was my, my first wife, uh, I was still friends, went to college, I just went with her and I applied to be a horticulture student. My first advisor was this woman, Pam Soltis, who's a, a very well-respected uh, plant systematist. And she said, don't do horticulture, do regular botany, which was a biology thing. So I just started taking all the biology classes I could. I took virology and fish biology and, you know, plant stuff, whatever. And I took an entomology class and I was hooked. I was like, there are so many kinds of insects. I will never have to think about the same one twice, which turns out to be a bit of a handicap. But I'll never have to think about the same one twice. I will always have a new thing to think about. And uh, and I stuck with it. I mean, I didn't and I didn't work as a professional entomologist, you know, right away. I also... Uh, worked for National Marine Fisheries Service as, a, as an endangered species uh, biologist for a while. Um, and then after my PhD, my current wife uh, got a job out where we live in Olympia, and I had to go with her. And, and this was the job that was available, and it's been the, the best job I've ever had. So. Wow. That is – you don't hear about a lot of people who don't want to go to college – 
and then end up with a PhD in science. That doesn't happen very often. It might be a, yeah, it probably reflects a, some kind of personal problem. But. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's, it's just crazy because a PhD requires a lot of work. I want to get a PhD. I've, I, I don't shy away from hard work, but I don't, I don't have one yet. So, I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it's just it's I, a strange path, but it's the one that got you here. I was really lucky along the way, though. I had, I had the most fantastic advisors as an undergrad, as a master's student, and as a PhD. So, I mean, any... Any bump in the road could have derailed that whole thing. I guess that's true. Well, that's great. So it led you here into this, you know, semi-celebrity state. I mean, do you feel like a celebrity now? I mean, I know you're not like Instagram influencer <laughs> famous, but you're you're like science, you know, expert famous, which is pretty cool. That's pretty funny. I, I am not an expert on uh, on Vespids or really anything. I My job in keeping with that short attention span entomology fascination is to be a a general entomologist for our agency. So I'm I'm supposed to be the guy that can help us start thinking about how to adapt to, to new pest challenges and deal with the weird little stuff that, that doesn't have good funding and also provide identification services. So I just happened to be the dude that was going out to put up some traps that day when the New York Times trap reporter went along. And honestly, <laughs> if he had called it something else, I mean, what was the joke I made? If he had called it the butts and line hornet, we would not probably be talking right now. Right. right. So. No, it was trending on Twitter. I mean, that's like where I saw it. It was like everywhere. And it was like, how can 2020 get any worse? But you know, this, this, this. Murder this. hornet. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And it's such a great name. Like I'm a big pro wrestling fan. And that is that is like a perfect like wrestler name, like the Murder Hornet. Sure. You know, there's a guy named the Murder Hawk Monster, and I was like, that's yeah. a great name. But like Murder Hornet, that's cool too. Death metal bands also. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people that I think will benefit from this. <laughs> right, right. Well, now let's let's talk about this particular insect. So we're, it's the giant Asian hornet, and so I looked up. So hornets and wasps. I was confused about the difference, but let me see if I have it correct. A hornet is basically like a subspecies of wasp. So all hornets are wasps. But not all wasps are hornets, correct? Uh, almost. It's not a subspecies. It's a genus. Okay, but okay. otherwise, yeah, everything you said is right. It's a particular kind of, of wasp. And they're significantly more aggressive than wasps, correct? Well, n- well, first of all, I would say they're significantly more defensive. I okay. mean, they are not. That's, that's one of the, the issues that I think entomologists have with the murder hornet name uh-huh. is that they're really self-defense hornets. <laughs> they, um, they sting people. When you are close to their nest or when you're close to a hive that they've decided to attack, but, but they don't, I, I've been by one in Taiwan. It just flew by me. It, it could have cared less what I was doing in the woods, you know? Right. So, um, there, but, but so hornets are social insects, right? So they, they are living together in these nests, these colonies, they have a, a single breeding or maybe just a couple of breeding, um, individuals, everybody else is the workers, just like in honeybees and, and part of their success in the natural world is, is aggressively defending their nests from predators, which are pretty much humans, bears, I don't know, maybe some specialized birds and then other insects. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why they have that bright coloring that, that is what we learn as visual predators to, you know, do not touch. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's, so like the so Vespa is the genus of the giant Asian hornet, right? And mm-hmm. and what's 
I mean, it's still funny because I, whenever people say murder hornet, I really never think of it from the human point of view. I always think of it from because I I look at what they do and they actively. So if I understand this correctly, what makes them crazy, especially I did a whole episode on on beehives and a, a sub a bonus episode on the parasites to bees, like what's uh. you know, colony collapse disorder, all the voramites and and um, the zombie fly and and all these just crazy things attacking bees, and it was weird because finally. Finally, Monsanto said, like, oh, yeah, Roundup is probably the reason why their immune systems are good, are deficient and that's what's going on. And, you know, we're starting to get laws into place to get rid of that. And it's like right when you think they're turning a corner, here comes this invasive species that not only – it's not like they go into a hive and just chop off one bee's head and take the thorax back to their young. They, like, annihilate a hive by just cutting off heads. That that when I heard that, I thought that's what murder hornet meant because there's no better definition of like mass murder than just chopping off the heads of all the workers in a hive and then feeding on the bodies. Yeah, I think of it still as more like the insect equivalent of a of a bison jump or something like that. It's just a really effective way to get a lot of protein right away, you know. I guess now why do they So I guess one of the things I was curious about with these guys is how come if they're feeding, so from what I understand, they're cutting off the head and they take the thorax back to feed their larva, basically. Why don't they just take what they need? Why do they have to decimate the hive? That almost seems counterintuitive, even from an evolutionary standpoint, to decimate the hive. You can just go back for more later. Well, it's, so it doesn't really work quite like that. So during most of the year, they're, they're feeding on other things besides bees. Uh, in fact, Japanese research suggests that, that beetles comprise 60% of their diet through the year. So they're out there just doing their predatory oh, hornet, catching a bug that they can eat, mashing it up, and then taking it back and feeding to their babies. Um, and maybe in August they'll start. I don't know if you can hear that's my murder terror. I can't. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna we're gonna try and eradicate those later. Um, <laughs> later, in, like in August, that's when they'll start predating on beehives, and at that stage they are just taking individual bees, just like you say. You know, oh, they're catching okay. one, they bite the head off, mash it up into a meatball, take it back to the hive, feed it to their grubs. Okay. At some point, and it's not exactly clear what triggers this, um, it could be um, just a, an evolutionary response to being able to recognize a concentrated protein source at the same time that their colony is getting ready to kick out all these uh, reproductive mm. queens and males. Okay. It could be that, that the other food supply dries up. You know, you start getting late in the summer, there might be fewer insects. People aren't quite sure. Yeah. But basically, at some point, they will pick one hive, um, a, a workable market with these... Uh, Oh, it's got a Dutch name. I forgot the name. I'd, I'd even tried to memorize it before we went on the this whatever. She marks it with a, a scent from her abdomen that recruits her sister workers, and then they come in and just obliterate the defenses of that one hive, wow. and then get to feed on all the babies. But you know they don't hit every single hive at all. And then also a really important thing that that it, that maybe not everybody gets is that they evolved this behavior. In um, when the the bees that they attacked primarily were Apis serrana, the the Japanese or Eastern honeybee, right? Which is the other one that we domesticate pretty broadly as a species. Uh, so that one has all these really awesome behaviors. You might have even read about them to protect themselves from these Asian giant hornets or Vespa mandarinia or the Oosuzumebachi. I think that's the uh, Japanese common name form, which means giant bee sparrow, which is super cool. <laughs> oh, that's great! Uh, Ooh, I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Apis mellifera, the European honeybee that, that we grow pretty much all over Europe and Africa and, and you know, United States and Canada, like all over the world, they evolve totally separate from these hornets. They have no kinds of defense. And so 
the impacts of the hornet are a lot more uh, exaggerated on this species where they've only been in contact for maybe a couple hundred years. Wow. And so just just to just to go over it, because I think they're, the Japanese honeybee's defense mechanism against these giant Asian hornets is pretty cool. Can you explain it? Yeah. So they have actually several. Um, and I'm still learning about these myself. So I'll tell you about the ones that I can remember. Uh, one of them is they will um, they will do this behavior where they maybe shimmer or fly around that actually seems to maybe confuse the hornets and makes it hard for the hornets to mark a hive. Um, there's this really cool paper I just read the other day where when the hornet comes and marks that hive with the pheromone, um, one of the things that, that these bees will do is go off and collect plant resins and come and just smear them all over the pheromone so it, so it can't off-gas and, and attract the workers so they can't find it again. Uh, they also, when, it's, when, the pheromone, when they come and mark the pheromone, they will behaviorally kind of retreat from that space, and that's when the hornets come in and land. And this is the one that I think people get the most excited about. The hornets will land, they'll walk into the beehive, and once they kind of get in, they get mobbed by these Apis serrana workers who bite onto them surround them in a bee ball, you know, vibrate their wings and raise the heat and dump carbon dioxide on that wasp. Um, and they essentially exceed the thermal threshold of that wasp and they cook it to death. That's, that's <laughs> so cool. That's amazing. I didn't know that they actually, like, I didn't know that they basically set a trap. Like that's almost their equivalent of a pitfall trap. Like they basically allow the, the hornets to get in there and then they just mob it. And yeah, it was a trap or more like, like just really, waiting for the opportune time to attack. Right, yeah. <laughs> but for Apis mellifera, the European ones, they're just like, oh my God, hornets! And they run outside, and an animal that's four or five times the size of them just bites them, so. Yeah, well, they have, what's crazy is, you know, so we're going to talk to, like, because I want to know how, when these things landed, what happened, but and we're going to talk about, like, getting into the, the hives. But, you know, one of the things I forgot to mention is these guys, as you mentioned, they're, you know, they're about the size of a thumb, they're the queens are anyway, but even, you know, the workers are still pretty large, I mean, hence the yeah. name giant. But they have mandibles that are incredibly strong, and you know the the their stingers can go through bee you know beekeeping suits and their mandibles it can still are pretty strong on the skin. I don't know what the what kind of damage they can do, but I'm pretty sure they can probably draw blood and you know they can remove a chunk of your flesh. Whoa, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, there's um I don't know there there's there's a there's a guy who has a, a web page where he talks. I think he calls it like my pet hornet or something, and he talks about his. It can't be his pet. I, I didn't look into it too, too deeply, but he talks about having one of these on his knee that both bit and stung him at the same time. Um, the bite tore chunk out of his, like a visible chunk out of his, uh, out of his knee or his leg, and then the the sting made him swell up and be in pain for days. Holy cow! I mean, they, yeah, they're they're they've got a lot of offensive weapons. I mean, they're they're really something. I mean, as humans having to go out and eradicate these, that, that's going to be the problem later on. But let's talk about kind of the – I feel like this is probably as far I, – I, so again, I, I'm a big beehive. I'm a big you know bee fan and the thought of like another predator on bees is kind of terrifying. So, a, I know how important they are, but B, I know how kind of docile – the American, or the, I guess it's the Italian honeybee, but the honeybees we use in America, how docile they are and very important and everything. So this thought of a predator coming in and wiping them out is pretty terrifying. But I feel like from what I read, it's a little overblown. It's not like they're taking over. As a matter of fact, I don't think any have been seen like nest-wise in Washington. Uh, there was a hive eradicated in um, British Columbia, I believe. Um, but that's kind of it, right? So it's more of the fear that they may take hold more than these guys are here. Uh, we got to get ahead of this, right? 
Well, here, here's an exclusive for you. Okay. All right. Oh, so, yeah, first, um, you're right. There was actual nest in um, Nanaimo that was located back in August. Uh, well, actually, some beekeepers started reporting these big wasps in August. Of 2019. Uh, it was of 2019, right. Sorry, last year. Um, and it was, you know, they confirmed, entomologists confirmed that, oh, yeah, this is a thing we're not used to seeing here. Uh, they actually discovered it in September, and they were able to destroy that nest. And there's a fantastic account of that by Conrad Berube, who who was one of the beekeepers. He actually works for the provincial government, who um, destroyed that nest. He has a pretty diverting YouTube video, too, where you can watch him being stung through his bee suit. Uh, and so that, that was it. And then a little bit later in the year, there was a photograph from White Rock, B.C. So that's pretty far from Vancouver Island. That's that's right down near the border of Washington, um, just, just over the border, in fact. And then in December is when we at the Department of Agriculture received that that first specimen. This was just like a homeowner that walked out their door, looked down, and saw the biggest flying wasp thing they had ever seen. And they got on Reddit and said, hey, what's this thing? And Reddit said, we think that's an Asian giant hornet. You should tell somebody. And that came through the Washington Invasive Species Council, trickled down to agriculture. Uh, we went and visited it. Um, I was I remember where I was. I was at a meeting in, in Coeur d'Alene and that thing came onto my phone and my heart sank because we get a lot of false reports and that is fine. I want people to keep sending me as many reports as of anything that they see. Mm -hmm. And that's not a big deal. It's pretty easy to bet them. But this one was just really alarming. My boss was able to go to the site and verify that's exactly what it was. And right after that, we learned that another beekeeper had found a worker just about a kilometer away earlier in the year. He had actually watched them attacking his hive. He didn't have a, a hive death. Um, so so that's it. We have these two workers that, that seem like they must be from a nest that is different than the Nanaimo nest because that's really far. Um, that's uh, 90 kilometers or something like that. It's it's not at all plausible that they're from the same nest. And since then, we've had some uh, beekeeper reports. And, you know, and anytime uh, the public tells you about an insect thing, it's a lot like what it seems like eyewitnesses are for human crimes, right? They, <laughs> right. they, they, yeah, seem, yeah. they seem bigger and, you know, they're shaped different. Sure. And I know I'm absolutely sure it was that guy, you know, whatever. Flew off with their dog, stuff like that. You know, it's not reliable. We, we don't remember things the same way, especially if we're not experts. But we've had a couple of beekeepers who are old. I mean, they're not just old, but I mean, they've been keeping bees <laughs> for a long time. Uh, they're pretty experienced. They've been outdoors. They've been stung by everything. You know, bee beehives are are attacked and predated by yellow jackets and bald faced hornets, and and sometimes polistes will be there. Uh, those are paper wasps. Um, I don't know if they actually attack the beehives, but they certainly will nest up near in places beekeepers go. And and these guys have told us a couple of really alarming, concerning um, stories that that we're taken seriously and are wow. really worrisome. You mean as, as in that there are, may, there may be some established nests. There might, we might have some nests to kill this year. Yeah. Wow. And our hope is just that we can find the damn things. So. Right. Yeah. That's gotta be tricky, but uh, cause I want to talk about that in a second. But one of the things that I thought was kind of crazy about the story is I'm very aware of the natural world. I love insects. I love, you know, wildlife. I just, you know, I'm a natural, naturally curious person. I don't know that I would have the presence of mind to report anything like that, especially a wasp. Like I, I live in California and there are, I hardly ever see salamanders about a year ago, almost to the day I saw what looked like a salamander biting another salamander. And it turns out that that's just, they're kind of freaky, you know, sexually speaking. And that's kind of what they were doing. And I haven't, I never saw them again. Like they went into the woods, did their thing. I've never seen them again. And then, 
I saw like two, maybe two or three days ago, I saw another salamander, and they're pretty big, maybe you know half the size of my forearm or something, pretty long. I, but I, you know, he went into the shrubs, and I, I never thought twice about it. I wouldn't think that, like, oh, this is an invasive species or anything like that, especially because you see other salamanders around. And with wasps, you see wasps and bees all over the place. Even if you saw a big one, I don't know that I would have the presence of mind to really do that. So how? I mean, is it? It must be a little bit. There must be a little bit of serendipity in this because how did the? I mean, it is exactly something that should be reported these giant Asian wasps, how does that happen? How do people even know to do this? Um, so I, I don't think they usually know what they're reporting. So we actually wrote a paper and it was published in the American Entomologist, I don't know, six years ago, uh, something like that, um, that, that looked at how we learned about exotic pest species in Washington. So not all exotic species, just things we could say like are actually a pest that's going to cause somebody money or heartache or whatever. And like a third of them came from the public. And and that pathway of information is almost always people saying, I don't know what this is, not I think it's this bad thing, mm, right? So, I see. so it's okay. really just people reaching out and feeling like they can reach out and, and not having some entomologist be a jerk and be like, oh, you don't know what that is? It's so obvious. <laughs> like that is always the wrong response. Uh, <laughs> right, and, right. And I encourage all my entomologist friends out there to not do that. And I, I know they don't. So we, we just do it. We, we say that to each other, but never to anybody else. No. Sure. Um, so, so that's it. I think it's just it's, it is true, like, you know, benefiting from the crowd. And it's mostly people asking questions. Now, some people are really motivated to specifically seek out invasive species and report them. We have, you know, we, we have this invasive species app that they use here in Washington and actually basically everywhere on Earth now where people can use their cell phones and be like, I do think I see a feral swine or I do think this is giant hogweed or whatever. And, and so there are some really specific things, but it's the stuff we don't anticipate where we benefit from the public just just having questions. You know? Right. No, I guess that makes sense. Uh, so let's talk about the, you know, the the even you know the nests that may be up there, and, and the process of. I imagine the plan is to eradicate them. You know, there's no there's no dealing with them. The plan is to eradicate. Yeah. Okay. And and from what I understand, there's there's a time window as well, right? Like you guys have to do this before a certain time period, or they can become established, or do they are they underground during the spring, or is there you know a, a seasonal time frame? So all of that, yeah. Um, on the broader time scale, and, and this is something I said that I kind of wished I hadn't earlier. Uh, I said something like, "If we don't do this in a couple of years, it probably can't be done." That's that's not exactly true. What I really meant was, if we don't figure out our method in a couple of years, it may not be able to be done. But that said, there is a small window of opportunity to keep it from spreading, um, and that's that's one of the knowledge gaps we have. We don't even know how fast these or how far a, a, a queen would fly. Um, when she's dispersing from the nest at the end of the season. So, okay, so that's that's the large scale thing. The, the smaller scale, the, the, the year scale one is, yes, we want to be able to eradicate nests before they start producing the new generation of queens and males. Um, and so that is before about October uh, is when we, we try to find them. And so what we'll do is we'll be, we have this trapping grid. We're, we're doing at least 330 sites. We're probably going to have to get it up to more, which will rely a lot on collaborators and the public to help. Um, we have all these sites out there, and they are to monitor workers. And once we start catching workers in a place, we'll increase our trap density and uh, and try to follow that gradient of dense workers back to a likely nest. We also are experimenting. We're going to actually do this experiment in a couple of weeks. I'm pretty excited with uh, tying radio collars, cameras, and ribbons to uh, large insects 
and seeing if what? we can follow them somewhere, basically. I mean, they've, they've done this in Europe. They have a, a different species, Vespa velatina, that is, that is invading Europe. It is also a honeybee predator. It doesn't do it quite the same way as Vespa mandarinia, but it's, but it's bad enough. I mean, the, the initial, initial uh, analysis suggests that it's costing beekeepers money and time and, um, and, and reduced honey and productivity. Uh, they've been able to use these radio collar, these little radio tags, for, not radio collars, <laughs> that would be awesome, like radio tags that are, I think, designed for like little songbirds. I uh, tie them to the wasp and then follow that signal across the landscape. So their species nest in trees, which is really helpful because then you just have to kind of get close and you can start looking around with binoculars and you can see a big wasp nest up in a tree. Ours nest in the ground, and that is hard. You've been to northwest Washington. You've seen how dense the undergrowth is here. Um, so for that, we're actually going to rely on infrared or I, I mean infrared's not the right word, thermal imaging cameras the uh, those nests they they keep their nest at almost ninety degrees Fahrenheit uh, once it gets big and starts being established and that that's warmer than you know Washington in general it's warmer than the ground so we're hoping we can kind of get close-ish and then use that those cameras to help help find nests we also have um, the Skagit County Sheriff's Office is is volunteered to help us with their drones if they can, and they have infrared cameras on them. And so we don't know if that will work. That may be too far away, but you know, I don't I don't know anything about that kind of technology. So that's handy. Well, I mean, that's almost the temperature of a human body, like in the ground. I mean, that's it's definitely it's a little cooler. Than the ground. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's wow. That's crazy. Now, now hold on. I want to just verify something that you said you're going to tie cameras around the bees well so the university of washington has some researchers that have developed tiny cameras that actually fit on large-bodied insects and these are nothing if not large-bodied insects Uh, and so we're actually getting together with them in a couple of weeks and the plan is to i mean this is the plan It, it may all fall apart who knows but right now the plan is to get together with them see if we can tie or glue one of those cameras to a large insect like maybe a bumblebee queen or or a Dolica Vespula, a bald-faced hornet worker, which is truly actually an air, a, a yellow jacket, uh, and just see if we if that works to follow them back to the nest. No, we, we don't know. That that's not, I mean, so I do another podcast about advanced technology, <laughs> fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies for people out there. And I've never heard of tiny cameras that fit on insects. That's, that's yeah, I incredible. Hope, I got to go look I that up. I don't have that wrong. I think they're cameras. Maybe they're just radio tags, <laughs> but whatever. The, the, the point is, is we're going to be tying right. a bunch of stuff to bugs and trying to find out where they live. <laughs> right, right. That's, I mean, that's, that's nuts because I thought you had to go through like basically, you know, an analog process where you have to catch them and either re- release them and basically like manually follow them back home, I assume, is that, what you do? Or? That's actually another option. I mean, people in places where these are endemic and people want to go and catch the, catch them and eat them for food or destroy their nests, that's one of the techniques is to tie like a feather or a plastic streamer or something like that to them and, and try to follow them across the landscape. So, wow. I mean, we're, we are literally going to consider everything that seems rational. Wow. And so let's say this, this is great. The New York Times, they, they have a podcast called The Daily and they had, they were walking through someone who's going to eradicate one of these nests. This is a pretty crazy process. So let's say when you have established a location for a giant Asian hornet nest, what is the process from there? What do you do? Like from, tell me from the moment that you've confirmed the nest uh, to the to eradication, what goes on? Uh, well, so first we have a really robust and strict safety protocol already established, um, and that includes wearing these 
kind of hilarious protective hornet suits uh, that we were able to source from China where people, you know, go out and eradicate these hornets and, and do not take any chances. So these suits look like they look like kind of weird 1950s spacesuits. They're white and thick. They have two layers of mesh um, to keep that that long stinger away from you and kind of lock it up. They have a little fan so you can stay cool. Uh, so we'll wow. we'll put on these these hornet suits, um, and the hornets will become. Uh, oh, and the suits are white, which is interesting. So it seems like they are slightly more responsive to dark shapes. And again, I, I think this comes back to like bears and stuff, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just a, kind of a just so story. Um, so, so the suits are white. So maybe that helps us not be quite as alarming as we approach them. Um, but they will start being defensive at maybe up to 15 feet. So, Oh, wow. And in fact, that is how, uh, that's how the, if I recall, the Nanaimo nest was stumbled upon. They were out kind of looking for it and just got stung by one and they were still pretty far from the nest. That's a heck of a way to find it. Um, yeah. So we will find this nest. And then once we have that right now, the protocol is to use insecticidal dust that is also used to kill uh, to kill social insects like yellow jackets and, and bald-faced hornets and stuff. And it will simply be, be puffed into the, uh, into the nest by a long pole. I mean, there's a, there's an actual device apparently that administers this, and you know we've explored other things like insecticidal baits. Right now, that's not really on the table. I think because of non-target concerns, we've talked about using carbon dioxide and, and liquid nitrogen. I think the worry there is that we just won't knock them down fast enough. Wow, that is. I didn't know. It was Fifteen feet is pretty far it's from pretty a nest far. for them to. Yeah, I mean that's that. that I mean that's pretty far. And, you know, what I loved about the story is that, I mean, you're talking about specialized suits from China, from Asia, where they're, you know, where they're used to dealing with them. Mm -hmm. But this story had a guy who was basically in sweatpants and a beekeeping suit. Yeah, that was on his wrist and ankles. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's the one? Okay, yeah. yeah. Because he basically alerted them, like, before he got there and just got stuck. I mean, it sounded like something out of, like, a Looney Tunes cartoon, you know. I don't know if those are, I don't know if if your family were the ones who started the Looney Tunes, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Different different looney um but but you you know like could you imagine you're walking on this thing and you step on you know the twig like in in a movie and all of a sudden just this (laughs) yeah like it's crazy and yet i mean i don't know how effective the kevlar was only on his wrist and ankles he got stung through his glove a leather glove oh oh my god that's insane and it drew blood i think oh i don't remember that but but whatever it was no joke (laughs) yeah yeah I mean, it's 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 bananas, and and I, I the the non specificity of some of those techniques, I think, would be a real concern. Right. Um, you know, that is, I didn't even think about liquid nitrogen. That's crazy, but you know, he used carbon dioxide mm-hmm. or whatever. But I mean, that it's it's not an easy process. I think we can say that. No, know? this is um, yeah. This this one is not giving us a lot of uh, a lot of help. I mean, even our trapping system is really nonspecific. We we have a, a meeting Monday with the United States Department of Agriculture to explore, uh, and they're very invested in this to explore some research really rapidly uh, in collaboration with with Japan to try and identify some more specific pheromones or, or odors that can attract these right now we're relying on, Mm. on stuff you get at the grocery store, right? I keep making this, this stupid joke that the, the, we're basically trapping them with a really gross mimosa. Um, (laughs) what are you using? It's, 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 yeah, it's orange juice and and rice wine mixed together. (laughs) Um, it works. works? I'm running, you know, it's, it definitely works in overseas 
And I've been doing some experiments with that and some and some lures that were developed, more synthetic lures developed for yellow jackets and, and paper wasps. And and it catches yellow jackets and, and those things. It catches these close relatives. So it's gross, man. I hate dealing with it because you got to strain them. It starts coagulating really fast. By the time August rolls around, it's going to be horrible. But But wow. they catch all this other stuff, too. They're full of flies and, and these poor right. moths flutter into it. It'd be great yeah. if it had something specific. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> it's nuts. But you have to like, I mean, you know, it sounds like you have, you have to do a lot of things in a, on a relatively quick time scale at a time in the world where that's not always easy to do, especially, you know, you can't always, we're in a very weird time and it's very restricting. But, you know, just as of May 8th, Congressman Raul Grijalva, look at that, nailed it, hit the R's, both of them. Uh, from New Mexico? From Arizona, but yeah, he introduced legislation to basically fund the eradication efforts. I'm sure you you hate the bill name; it's the Murder Hornet Eradication <laughs> Act. But this is four million a year for like the next four years. That I mean, that's got to be helpful. It'll be interesting to see if that goes anywhere. On the one hand, I'm worried that that's premature. Like we only think it's in the Pacific Northwest right now. Um, we still have have pretty high hopes that we can just simply kill this thing off and the rest of the country will never have to deal with it. Um, so, so maybe, maybe that money isn't quite right. But then on the other hand, I start talking to these beekeepers and I worried that, that this species has been percolating on the landscape longer than we know, and it might be more widespread and, and we'll need, need all that money. Um, I mean, but I think part of that bill, if I recall the language was designed to help help uh, people all over the United States deal with uh, right, right, right. Asian giant hornet. And so some of that stuff is like beekeeper technology and things that, that might just be not quite we, – we may not be quite there. So, And I think, he's, I think he's a congressman from Arizona, if I'm correct, oh, okay. which was – I thought that was weird because it's nowhere near Arizona. So I was curious why – I mean unless he's a beekeeper, like a, you know, a beekeeper, like a hobbyist or something. I was wondering why he was so concerned enough to put something – you know, through or attach it to another bill instead of, you know, congressman from Washington or, you know, even Oregon or someplace around there, you know? Uh, if, again, if I recall the language right, it made some points that we as a country should be really thinking a little bit harder about how we interact with the natural world, how we're managing our natural resources, um, and, and the kind of invasive species threats we face just by even internally. I mean, we move species between states, let alone between countries and continents. Right. So, so it might've been that, um, that, that he just recognizes that this is an important error issue in a generic way, not just, mm -hmm. not just a murder hornet way. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's incredible how many invasive species there really are and how, you know, as you know, ever since the beginning of mass human travel, as we go back, you know, invasive species are a real problem because just from, you know, a, a biome like a local biome frame of mind a perspective you have essentially animals that exist under certain temperature environment conditions in one place with with that natural predators and everything nature's kind of worked out all the details but then they come to a place where they can live perfectly uh, but there's no system in place to keep the population in check and you know as we move stuff you know that that's a constant problem with all kinds of things because i'm imagining those are some of the conditions that brought the giant Asian hornet here. It's probably a complete accident that they ended up someplace, 
you know, and this happens a lot. So I agree with him that there, there, this is a problem with not just murder hornets, but in general. Now, so on that note, do you guys have any sort of like theories on how it ended up here, or is it accident? Or the no most likely is simply accident in cargo transport. Um, that is that is how almost everything gets introduced everywhere. The life cycle of this insect lends itself to that it, you know the, the queens can overwinter pretty successfully in a small pocket of soil so oh wow if there's okay. i don't know like like dunnage or ballast or, or something that's being moved that's, that's associated with cargo being shipped from across the uh, ocean it'd be really easy for a queen to to find herself in that situation um survive in that protected ship environment and and wake up here i actually had some contacts from the uh, the Japanese, you know, you know this JDM car import market. Okay. So Japan has all these kind of cool cars that that aren't available in the United States and Canada. They're these like four wheel drive Delicas and all this cool stuff. And we are a thriving market for these used cars that maybe aren't available in Japan. And some people have suggested maybe these cars sitting around, which has really increased in the last decade. I mean, I had this suggested to me by importers who said, "Oh yeah, think about this, buddy." Um, could be the kind of thing that would that would lend itself to a hornet. So they're they're out in the country because um, you can't really drive these delicas around in like downtown Tokyo. So they're out in the country. Somebody doesn't need it anymore. They decide we're going to sell it to the Americans because they'll pay us a bunch of money for our crummy old used van. That's great. Um, and it might have been in just the right spot to have a, a wasp show up. But but realistically, we we just don't know, man. It's it's probably cargo. And there is so much cargo going back and forth that it doesn't take much for that to happen. And, you know, Customs and Border Protection does a bang up job of of reviewing or of, of inspecting cargo and inspecting passengers and all of that stuff. But but we can't we don't do it at the level of a country like like New Zealand or something. You know, we still can only inspect a subset. They have some pretty sophisticated algorithms to, to like target what they will focus on. But it'd be not not impossible for something to slip through. And in fact, the one that's invading Europe, they think it showed up in empty pots. So, Oh, that's so crazy. I mean, look, I mean, even like border, border control, you know, to Canada or to Mexico, the people get through, right? Like you can sneak people through. So it's not hard to sneak an insect through. <laughs> well, right? I wasn't I even mean, thinking sneaking, but, but, um, but more like it, it's, it's easy to have an insect in your stuff and you just didn't know it. So we, we have that's sneaking. Yeah, but, that's sneaking. Oh, uh, it's from the insect's perspective, but it's not. That's that. all I think about. I've already established that. I'm uh, an insect. It's important to distinguish between the motives of Fair people enough. and the accidents of insects. So as you say, we, we have a, sure. a gypsy moth program, you know, that spoken we, like an entomologist that yeah. we do every year in Washington. We always have gypsy moths, maybe not every year, but multiple years that uh, are brought over on as just egg clusters from the eastern North America where they're established. And so all of the western states have pretty robust programs to, to trap and occasionally eradicate them. So, and that's just that's just from New Hampshire, you know, or whatever, right. Virginia, yeah. not, not another continent. Right, right. Well, it's I mean, it's it's really crazy. And one of the things, you know, as we as we close up here, one of the things I want to talk about because I just think it's worth a conversation is wasps in general, since we're talking about them, 
you know, it's not just a murder hornet. It's not just a giant Asian hornet that is one of the crazy wasps. Wasps are terrifying just as as an insect. I mean, if you're going to be afraid of an insect, and I'm personally scared of sharks, but if I was going to be scared mm. of an insect, wasps are the ones, especially these parasitoid wasps. Uh, I was watching some videos and looking this stuff up. These guys are pretty B.A. because – Wasps take on spiders. When you think of like dangerous insects, obviously a spider is not an insect; it's an arachnid. But they're the hunters of the you know of the of that world. Wasps hunt them. You know, there's wasps that can basically ter- make a spider create a cocoon for it. You know <laughs> that it, it protects the wasps' young. I was watching this video. I think it was on uh, maybe National Geographic or the BBC, where there's a wasp that basically lays eggs in a caterpillar, and the caterpillar, you know, they grow underneath the skin. They burst forth from the skin. And they build the larva build a cocoon around themselves. And then the caterpillar has been, you know, programmed by the chemicals to protect, not only put a cocoon around the larva, but also to protect them. Uh, You know, I did a whole episode on mind-controlling parasites, and wasps are kind of in that world. There's even one that, you know, the emerald cockroach a wasp can basically control a cockroach with its, it's like performs insect surgery on their brain. They're crazy. I mean, you got to agree with that. Yeah, they're really cool. <laughs> I like them. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I mean, do you, so you, these are kind of like part of your specialty, right? The parasitoid wasps? I mean, uh, not really. Um, the thing I did part of my PhD on and, and what I really still like working on are wasps that actually create galls on roses. I don't know if you've heard of galls before. Mm-mm, no. All right. So that's um, that's when a plant grows a structure in response to a foreign uh, organism living inside of it. Um, and so they're, they're pretty amazing. The the group Cynipidae is uh, it's a whole family of wasps. And within it, there are all these specialized gall inducers. They induce galls on oaks. That's actually probably the most well-known example. They induce galls on roses. These are the ones that I like. And essentially what happens is a female wasp will lay an egg in a plant tissue somewhere, maybe a leaf, maybe a stem, maybe a bud. And I don't know if we actually quite know. In fact, there are people working on this right now. Um, but somehow that insect, re, that larva, redirects plant development and it creates this structure that the larva lives within, within lives inside. Um, and then it just feeds on these plant cells. And these structures are amazing. They'll be like a ball covered with spines or covered with hair or maybe like a little weird lump or an enormous ball with lots and lots of cells in it. Um, they live in there and they feed on plant tissue. The, the plant will often grow cells that don't exist in the plant unless they've been galled. So they're, oh, they're wow. cells that have like more um, more photosynthate product shows up in there, um, that sort of thing. And then those galls are actually then intact by all of those parasitoids, wasps that you talked about. So, so my connection with parasitoids is really just um, in, in thinking about and describing these these gall wasp communities. So, so you'd have the, the gall wasp that's on – so there's the rose – and then the gall wasp, and yeah. then there are other cynipid wasps that kind of steal the gall. They, they call them inquilins. They might be better described as kleptoparasites. This is a, a very obscure scientific debate. Um, but they basically will take over the gall and make it go different. They can't start their own galls. They can only change the gall once it's already been galled. And then both of those are attacked by a whole bunch of other parasitoid wasps that lay their larvae in those galls, and then their larvae will feed on the on the gall wasps that are in there or chew their way from cell to cell. And then some of those parasitoid wasps are attacked by yet other parasitoid wasps. So you get these, these dynamic communities of, you know, a dozen species interacting in this food chain that sometimes we don't even quite understand because it all happens inside the gall on these rose plants. And then on those rose plants, 
uh, on the Palouse in you know Western Washington or Eastern Washington, where I did my PhD. Um, on Rosa woodsii, the native species there, there are almost a dozen gall species that occur on that on that on one plant alone. Some are on the roots, some are on the leaves, some are on the stems. Many are on you know there are multiple ones on the leaves. They can all occur the same rose patch. Wow. See, back to the short attention span theme. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! I feel like you need like a long attention span to figure out that in the entire dynamic there. I mean, that sounds like, <laughs> I mean, that that's like a rough neighborhood, right? I mean, that's like all these different everyone's got their own agenda and they're all feeding in, you know, off each other. And that's, that's pretty terrible. I'm going to use mean, that as the title of a talk, a rough neighborhood. I like that. That's a rough neighborhood, right? I mean, that's, there's a lot going on there. Uh, that's, I also love the word kleptoparasite because there's, I feel like that, I can use that to describe some humans. That's <laughs> kleptoparasite. That's there, there are definitely kleptoparasite humans. And, you know, we use that word actually in a lot of different insects. For instance, bees have lots of kleptoparasites, um, where the, you essentially are stealing the resource and causing harm to the other insect rather than causing harm to it directly. So, right, right. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a military strategy. I mean, that's, you know, that's cutting off people's resources. I mean, that's, that's. <laughs> We've I mean, seeded, we've decided to seed Alabama with kleptoparasites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alabama. I, I just pulled that at random. <laughs> hey, it's all right. They they deserve the shots they take. I think that they're uh, they got they've done some things in the past. I think year that probably they deserve that shot. One of the things. So I told you, sixteen millimeter stinger. I want to end on this. Six. So here's what. No, so 16. Oh, six, you do have one. All right, I got sorry. something for right. you. Yeah. So this is um, – I'm going to put – I'll put a link to this on the website. But there was a new – this is a Peruvian wasp. I'm going to get the name. I butchered names. I don't mean to. This is the Clistopyga crassucuadata. Uh, and this – I mean this is an incredibly looking wasp. This It's a wasp from Peru. Its stinger is exactly the length of its body or maybe it's like – Maybe it's like three-fourths the length of, length of its body. It is incredibly long. Uh, I think it's got to be right around 16 millimeters. I'll put a picture up. But, but what's amazing about this wasp, and I think you'll, you'll like this if you don't know about this wasp already, which you probably already do. But their stinger, they basically – this is one of the ones that – it's a parasite on, on spiders – but they use their stinger to basically to stun, to kill. It's used as a tube to incubate with the eggs. Um, and it also – they use it to, to convince the spider to wrap around uh, its eggs in its spider silk. It's a multi-purpose stinger and this thing is the length of its body. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it sounds like a big ichneumonid. Um, I'm not sure what it is. I don't know that wasp. But so your terminology actually brings up a really interesting distinction. I would probably call that an ovipositor, right? That's usually right, what we okay. call them in parasitoid wasps. Um, sure. They have some stinging. Now, now, just so I can activity. break that down, so that's basically delivering an egg yep. via um, its protuberance or stinger or whatever. Yeah. All right. When I started when I started this, doing this research on these parasitoid wasps that I told you about. Um, that uh, that haven't been described. I was actually translating a lot of Russian literature. There's a, a oh, yeah? pretty um, some Russian scientists who has done a lot of work on on or at least it was Cyrillic script. I think it was Russian on on this genus in Europe. And and at the time, Google Translate was not very sophisticated. And so when I was translating her papers just by copying and pasting and seeing what it would say, it called ovipositors egg treasures repeatedly which i thought was a really <laughs> oh, funny name anyway but but in, yeah, so great. an ovipositor is what most of these things have they they have stinging characteristics you know they administer all kinds of chemicals that come with their eggs sometimes to help 
um, subdue their prey if they're that kind of wasp or to facilitate their egg doing fine if they're that kind of wasp. Um, A stinger maybe is more accurately reserved for the insects like like these social wasps where i mean maybe not maybe maybe it works well anyway but but um like like all those honeybees you know they have stingers all of those worker bees and that is that is a distinct thing now from how they actually lay eggs uh stinger really just just is there to be a defensive a defensive weapon and 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 eggs come from a, a different spot so it's just kind of an interesting tangent on the evolution of hmm. of wasp morphology. So. Well, I mean, I think that's important because essentially what you're saying is the stinger does one thing, but these, you know, basically it's a like a, a hypodermic needle that yeah. is that can, you know, it's like a multi tool that, that can, like you said, a multi tool. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. I mean that's a huge evolutionary jump, and you know, to the naked human eye, that doesn't look like much, but that's incredible. Uh, I think that's an important distinction. It's probably the other way around, actually, though. The, uh, the what do you think? The devolution, if you will, of the stinger to a, a, a purpose driven anatomical thing seems to be in these these more um these more derived lineages so oh so you're saying that the ovipositor came first and then it then it devolved into a, just a stinger yeah so if in fact huh. it, it probably devolved is really that's super anthropomorphic let's just pretend none of us said that but yeah okay. <laughs> it evolved into a, a stinger in fact one of the other groups that i that i kind of work on are sawflies and this is the basal lineage of hymenoptera they're pretty much all plant feeders um and they're one of the things that we've gotten a lot of reports on that, that people think they're seeing Asian giant hornet because they're big. Uh, a group of them are horntails. They uh, they f- uh, feed in wood and they have big, long, terrifying looking ovipositors. So yeah, wow. That they drill into wood with. It's I mean the wasps. I have a newfound respect for wasps. Not just the giant Asian hornet, which is getting that's really the superstar right now in in the world. But wasps in general, I think, are extremely underappreciated. And if I was any kind of insect uh, or even a small mammal, frankly, I would be terrified of these things. Wasps are have got my respect, and I think they're probably some of the most dangerous pound for pound, size for for size on, on a scale level. They're probably some of the most dangerous. Dangerous creatures in the animal kingdom, in my personal opinion. Let's be glad we're big apes. <laughs> exactly. Thank God for that. Uh, well, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation, and I'm sure you're going to be in the news more. But if people want to ask you questions, how can they get in touch with you? How can they, you know, f- send in their their uh, giant Asian hornet sightings? How do we? How do they do all that? Um, so if you go to our webpage, www.agr.wa.gov forward slash Hornets, um, there is a plethora of information and a way to contact many of us working on the Asian giant Hornet project. It's not just me. And so that's, that's the best way to start. Now, what about you? Do you do social media at all? Are you, you, you doing all that stuff? No, <laughs> I don't even do Facebook anymore. I need to, I need to find my cousin who I haven't talked to in a while cause I got off Facebook and so I can't remember her number. So no. <laughs> It's not my thing. Um, I've been kind of insulated from a lot of this. I've had friends sending me uh, Instagram links and memes and stuff that have turned out to be funny. I mean, I do not have, I have to say, and and I hope I don't get any entomological hate mail, I don't feel quite as strongly about the murder hornet name. I I think it's been really funny. And uh, and it rolls off the tongue, you know? That's awesome. I wasn't sure if you didn't like it or not. I think it's a great name. It's I don't awesome. think we should use it, and I'm not going to use it in any any serious <laughs> literature. But I, but I, I appreciate it for what it is. So can I call you Mister Mister Murder Hornet since you're kind of the guy associated with it? That's a pretty cool nickname. Can we do that, Doctor Doctor Looney? Doctor Looney. <laughs> 
No, Chris. You just call me Chris. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I will, in my head, think of you as Mr. Murder Hornet. Uh, I will call you Chris, but I will respect you like Dr. Looney. Uh, but this has been an absolutely incredible conversation, and I, I really thank you so much for taking so much time and talking to me about this. It was a lot of fun, man. Thanks for reaching out. Oh, thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like the show, you got to subscribe. You don't want to miss a single episode. I've made it really easy. First of all, I'm on all the major podcasting platforms, Google Play, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and of course, TuneIn. If you like any of that stuff, if you're a member of any of those any of those podcasting platforms, you can find me there. But if you're not, I made it easy. You can go to fascinatingnouns.com. Bottom of the page, you can find links to this to subscribe. You can also find links to previous shows, past guests, some of the articles that we've talked about, or even follow the show on social media. You can find links to the show's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Of course, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.